Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now, uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, right? Gathering information, you get buy-in from every team, uh, you know, following up. That's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keep or Cut from the Pitcherless, Pitcherless Podcast Network. I'm your host today, Pete Ball, joined by Chad Young. This is episode 122. Does that sound right, Chad? Yeah, 122. Man, we're really just uh, piling up the episodes here. Chad, <laughs> good holiday season. I mean, it is December 26th. This episode's going out December 30th, so this may seem a little bit dated, but uh, how are your holidays, Chad? Very good. Good. Got some. Got a, a nice uh, a guardian sweatshirt yesterday. A book about baseball stadiums. Son Perfect. got some baseball cards. Love that's it. A, that's a good Christmas right there. I uh, my dad got me some Cooperstown Distillery bourbon uh, that I'm Ooh. itching to crack open and try. And I'm a sucker for alcohol that comes in uh, really cool bottles. And this comes in a glass bottle that's the shape of a baseball, and it has the laces on it and everything. It's actually pretty cool. Nice. Um, we'll see how it tastes, but uh, hey, I don't know. All bourbon tastes the same to me. I'm not really a sophisticated young <laughs> man here. So, um, But with episode 122, we do have to talk about the number 22. And uh, it looks like, Chad, we have a repeat from last week, uh, where last week the player at the top, I believe, was Roger Clemens. And once yeah. again, it's Roger Clemens this time, but his Yankees and Astros version. Yeah, I mean... He, I guess he switched from 21 to 22 and maybe back. No, he he started his career as 21, flipped to 22, and he put together a pretty good career, but I don't know. I'm not super inclined to give this to him. There's another pitcher, just a, a couple names down the list, who, who wore the jersey almost twice as long, might eventually get to twice as long. I associate Clayton Kershaw with 22 for sure. Myself as well. Clayton Kershaw. This is definitely the Clayton Kershaw episode. No disrespect to the Rocket there, but um, 16 seasons, MVP, Saw Youngs. It's going to Clayton Kershaw. I do uh, want to so put a, a shout out to guy. I was just scrolling down the list to see like other names that might pop up. Andrew McCutcheon is on there. Uh, Jimmy Key, who probably predates you by a little bit, but not me. There are a few other names, but the name that jumped out at me. This is not a player I've ever heard of before. I don't know a lot about him. I'm going to have to do some research. But uh, for the Tigers and then the St. Louis Browns in the 40s and 50s, a guy named Virgil Trucks. And <laughs> Virgil Trucks is just a good baseball name. Might even be a better football name, but I just he, he was he was a pitcher for those two teams. He also pitched some later years with it looks like the White Sox, the 
the Athletics when they were in Kansas City, the Yankees, wearing must have worn different jersey numbers at that time. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look into Virgil Trucks. Yeah, he must have tap danced his way out of some danger. Career 1.3 whip, but a career 3.39 ERA. I don't know how that tracks, but... uh, Different era, different era. No kidding. Virgil Trucks. All right, awesome. Well, we do have a theme for today's episode, um, but before we even get into that, I wanted to talk about a few news items, Chad. There's not a lot happening. I think we all thought the hot stove was really going to pick up once Otani signed, and yet it really still hasn't. which is a little weird, but uh, I'm sorry, not Otani, but uh, uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto. And and he's signed and sealed delivered to the Dodgers. And yet we still, I don't know, I'm still kind of waiting for things to happen. I'm hoping the Red Sox get Teoscar Hernandez. He's liking some things on, on Twitter and Instagram. He's following some Red Sox accounts. I think that's going to happen. Um, but there have been some things under the radar that I thought were a little interesting. And so um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you a, a rundown of each one of them. We'll go one at a time here. And then uh, I got a question for you for each one. So let's start with Mitch Garver to the Mariners, your local team there. Two years, $24 yeah. million. A player who's had some real up and down fantasy value throughout his career. Essentially, Roster Resource has him as the everyday DH. Um, they have him hitting third behind Julio Rodriguez, who's pretty good. Now, the Mariners lineup looks terrible, and uh, but that still <laughs> seems like a good place to hit. So, I mean, simply... Does Garver being a full-time DH and hitting behind Julio Rodriguez and having the year he had last year, does that make him a top seven catcher for you? It's an interesting question. Top seven. So he, let's start with this. He was basically a full-time DH last year. He caught some, but like, you know, it was interesting when this, when this signing happened, people were like, oh, this is an interesting move. Now the, the Mariners, you know, they will maybe they'll carry a third catcher, but maybe they won't. They could just go with Raleigh and Garver. And I was like, they don't have two catchers. Like the Rangers went out of their way to add Austin Hedges in September last year just to avoid Mitch Garver ever being behind home plate. And given his injury history and everything like that, like, you know, the the conversation I was having, people were talking about this in an auto new perspective where five games, five starts is enough to get you in. People are like, well, he'll get his five starts, right? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I think he might get, there's a possibility he gets like 25 starts. He comes, you know, once a week, whatever. But I think it's just as likely that he gets zero. And they're just like, look, dude, don't even bring your glove with you. <laughs> like show up to camp with your bat. And other than that, like we don't even want you picking the glove up because I don't want you to pull a hammy trying to lift a catcher's glove with all that padding on it. So I, I think he was going to end up as a full-time DH wherever he went. And so I've been sort of, viewing him that way no matter what a a top i mean nfbc adp we're gonna talk about nfbc adp later his adp this is over the entire draft season um actually on this i'm gonna i'm gonna refresh because i'm looking at out of date nfbc adp so i'm gonna switch over to just adp this month so basically, what what is what's happened since December first? I'm looking at catchers in a moment. Garver is the where is he? he is the seventeenth catcher off the board. Uh, so let's start with this: if Garver is going to be the seventeenth catcher off the board, he is very good value at the seventeenth catcher off the board. Is he top seven? 
I don't know. I mean, look at the guys going near the top. I I would take Rutschman over him, Real Muto, William Contreras, Will Smith. I like Yiner Diaz better. I like Raleigh better. That's that's your six. And then after that, is he better than all of Sal Perez, Sean Murphy, Francisco Alvarez, Wilson Contreras, Gabriel Moreno, Logan Ohapi, Bo Naylor, Jonah Heim, Kiebert Ruiz, and Luis Camposano, who are all still going before him? I don't think he's better than all of those guys. Some of those guys, yes, but no, I, I don't think he moves into the top. I, no, I, I don't. I don't think the top seven. I think he is. I, I think the lineup will be fine for him because of where he's hitting in that lineup. He did the fact that the bottom half of that lineup is uh, bad is not going to be a problem for him. But I just, I don't know. I mean. This is still a guy who has played, let's see, 87, 54, 68, 23, 93, 103, and 23 games. That's going back to 2017. That is his whole career. Now, he's a catcher or was a catcher, right? So, like, some of those years you sort of get, right? 23 games a rookie, whatever. 103 in 2018 was his first real look, 2019, 93. But even since then, it's just – he just – he isn't playing very much. He has gotten to more than half the games in a season once in his career since, or once in the last four years. And that was last year with Texas when he was mostly a DH. So maybe if he's entirely a DH, he can get to a hundred games, but like, I don't think you're going to get, this isn't like, Oh, I'm going to get 150 games out of this guy. Right. Cause that's the beauty of a catcher who's playing another position or who's a DH is like, oh, I, I draft a guy as my catcher and he plays 150 games. That's huge value. That's just not who Garver is. And on top of that, like this is not a great landing spot for him from a park perspective. So in terms of overall park factor for right-handed hitters, T-Mobile Park has a park factor of 94. It is tied for the worst park for right-handed hitters in baseball. Now, coming from Texas, the Rangers have the sixth best park factor for right-handed hitters at 102. From a power perspective for right-handed hitters, Globe Life Park is a 112. It's the fifth best. And T-Mobile is more sort of middle of the pack. It's 19th best at 99. But like, that's, that's a pretty big downgrade. I'm just, I still like him. I think he's a good value where he's going in drafts, but no, I'm not, I don't even think I'm moving him up into the top 10. He's closer to top 10 than he is to top seven though. That's fair. My, my takeaway from this conversation ultimately is, you know, I, and I'd actually say, I think, the, I think one through four runaway, that's a lock though. Rushman, Real Muto, William Contreras and Will Smith. That's like, that's the top four catchers to me for sure. And then if you want to say Yiner Diaz is in a tier alone, which he kind of is when it comes to ADP, he's at pick 107. Will Smith before him is all the way at pick 82, and behind him is Cal Raleigh at 134. So Yiner Diaz is kind of in his own tier. I think after Yiner Diaz, catchers six through Mitch Garver, I I think this position is just deep. Like I'm perfectly like if I wanted Sean Murphy and I miss out on him and I'm like, you know what? Now I'm just going to wait forever and take Mitch Garver. I I feel like just as good, maybe better because I waited. And I I know we talked about that quite a bit in our last episode, but um, I do. I I just think it's a deep position. So it it is. It totally is. 
Keeping things moving here, Yuki Matsui signed with the Padres, who is a reliever in the NPB for about a decade. And um, I didn't think much of this move until I realized that he could end up closing with San Diego. So he signed for five years, $28 million guaranteed. There's a weird line in there, and I got this from MLB Trade Rumors, where essentially the Padres can, quote, convert the fifth year of the contract into a club option worth uh, $7 million if Matsui suffers a, quote, serious elbow injury during the life of the contract. I don't know if that's a normal thing or if that's just something that they have a concern about given... His situation, his medicals, I have no idea. Just throwing that out there. But assuming he is healthy, um, I think he'll close. The market for uh, Josh Hader hasn't really picked up. The Padres don't really seem like big-time buyers for the first time in A.J. Preller's history. And Hader will be pricey, so I don't think he's coming back. And Roster Resource has him and Robert Suarez both listed as closers. Suarez had a 4.23 ERA and only 24 strikeouts in 27 and two-thirds innings last season. Matsui, even though he's a lefty, and you know they might decide they don't want... Uh, Hayter was a lefty too, so I don't know how much that matters to them. I think he'll get a fair look. In the NPB, he had 236 saves, a K-9 of 11.7, an ERA of 2.56, and a whip of 1.10. Again, 236 saves. If I told you, Chad, today that Matsui was guaranteed to be the closer for San Diego. And they don't look terrible. San Diego should be a decent ball club. Would he be a top 10, top 10 relief pitcher for you? 15, 20? I know we haven't done our rankings yet, but like where where do you think Matsui would fall if he was guaranteed to have the job? I mean, I I think guaranteed to have the job is just such a... there's, There's so few guys... It's not really that few, but it's fewer than it used to be who are like capital C closer, have the job every time there's an opportunity on the line, they get the ball, right? So like with fewer of those guys around, being top 15 of those guys isn't necessarily that good. <laughs> like you, you could be one of the worst of those and still be borderline top 15. I, I think, let me start by the saying this. I, I don't know that he's going to be the closer. I think Robert Suarez probably has the inside track there. Um, and I wouldn't overlook Angel De Los Santos, who I- I'm familiar with because he got traded from Cleveland to join that bullpen. He had, what did he have, 16 holds, 17 holds, something like that last year. 16 holds. Uh, he did not have a save, but the Guardians had Class A, and, and Stefan was really ahead of San- De Los Santos as well. But he was quite good last year, and that was with his strikeout rate being pretty far down. And if his strikeout rate comes back at all, I think he's going to be a really good bullpen piece there. So I think it's pretty open to that bullpen, which is me totally punting on your question of whether he's one of my top 15 closers. Because I just, I don't there's know. a lot like, of guaranteed, I don't want to say guaranteed, but there, there's more, definitely more guys who look like they're going to have closers roles this year than yeah. there were last year. Last year, there was a lot of gray area, a lot of ambiguity. This year, it looks like there's a lot more. So looking at looking at ADP right now, and this is a little harder to do because NFPC doesn't split relievers and starters. So I just got to sort of filter through here and try to find them. But I got Devin Williams, Edwin Diaz, Josh Hader is, is he the third? He is. He's the third closer off the board. He's not even on a team yet. So that's interesting. <laughs> Emmanuel Classe is fourth. Camilo Duvall, fifth. Yohan Duran, sixth. Iglesias, Bednar are seven and eight. Alexis Diaz, Jordan Romano, nine and ten. Seawald, 11. Presley, 12. 
Andres Munoz, 13. I'm still not taking Matsui over these guys. Yeah, no way. Fairbanks is 14, and he's a guy who may not have a full-time job. Helsley is 15. Evan Phillips is 16. Boy, Evan Phillips is right when I hit the point where I'm like, I don't know. I might rather take Matsui because I don't know how how locked into that job Phillips is. But again, that comes down to a locked into the job kind of thing, right? And, And so... I'm still taking Phillips over Matsui right now because I think Phillips has a better angle on that job. And I think, you know, unless you could guarantee me that Matsui was the full-time closer, I would probably rather have an 80% closer Phillips or 75% closer Phillips than Matsui, even if even if he was the full-time guy. Tanner Scott comes in. We're starting to get into that range, but like Clay Holmes, I, I don't know. Kenley Jansen, like I would rather have Kenley Jansen than Matsui. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I I agree with you. I think we're, we're, we're firmly in that range of like, you're just getting a guy who has, you hope has a job and, and probably has a job. I think this, this comes up a little bit later in drafts now than it did in drafts last year. I would flip Fairbanks and Helsley. I disagree with the ADP on that. And I think that is where I would draw the line where if you told me again, in this hypothetical world, Matsui had a guaranteed job, then I'd take Helsley before him. And then I think it would be Matsui for me. But um, again, that's that's assuming he has a job, which there's no reason to assume that. And, and I agree with you. I think these other guys have a clearer path right now than Matsui does. Yeah, I mean, just go, having gone through that list, like, and I know you sort of, you know, maybe it's the Red Sox fan and you're reacting to Jansen, but like Kenley Jansen is, should be locked into that job. He had 29 saves last year, despite only last, you know, making it to 44 innings pitched. Like there's, He's a pretty Ugh. decent bet for 25 to 30 saves. That's if they win 25 to 30 games. <laughs> so I, I could I could tell you that, yes, they will win at least, you know, 45 games. I wouldn't, you know, right, they're I not going to win that. But I, the other thing I, I, and I, I will harp on this with closers, it, it's worth talking about, but people over index on caring about how good a team is when they think about a closer. And the reason I say that is because your best closers, yes, your best closer who saves, let's say, 40 games or whatever, like who who saved the most last year? I think Emmanuel Klasse. Oh, yeah, it was Klasse. So that's a, actually, that's a perfect example, right? The, the Guardians, I, you know, I love the Guardians, but the, the Guardians were not a very good team last year. They did not win all that many games. They won less than 80 games, right? Like... They were, they are exactly the kind of team that people are like, oh, I don't know. Are they going to win enough games? Blah, 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 blah. But the reality is that a team like the Guardians, when they win, they don't score a lot. They have decent pitching. They win close, low scoring games. The next most saves in baseball last year, David Bednar with 39. Pirates, also not a good team. Why did he get so many saves? Because when the Pirates win, as rare as that is, they win close games. They are not good enough to blow people out. Third on the list was Camilo Duvall. They were not a very good team last year. Alexis Diaz is fourth. They were not a very good team last year. Devin Williams is fifth. Milwaukee was sort of a mediocre team. They made the playoffs, so it's you know hard to write them off, but it's not like they were like a world beater. Jordan Romano is sixth. They were also a pretty good team, even though they, they did they not make the playoffs? They didn't make the playoffs, right? Toronto, they just missed. Or my uh, Toronto was, I don't think they made it. 
Uh, Paul Seawald pitched for two different teams. He's seventh on that list. Both of his teams were sort of borderline playoff teams. One got in, one didn't. The one that got in happened to play forever, but that's a different <laughs> different thing. And he wasn't uh, actually then, that good with them. He was much right. better with the team that, that didn't make it. Josh Hader on San Diego, who were not particularly good last year. They didn't win that many games. And then the ninth best closer in baseball is Rizal. Sorry, not ninth best closer. Ninth most saves. He actually tied with Hader for the eighth most saves is Rizal Iglesias. That's really the first team that you get to that you're like, that's a good team. That's a closer on a good team. They're going to get a lot of wins. That's a guy. But you know what? Atlanta beat the crap out of everybody, right? You can't get a save in a 10 to 2 game. Right. So I, I like, this is the thing for me is like, I don't actually, like, if you could guarantee me, the, the reason, the last time I talked about this with people was around Mason Miller. And it was, someone was like, even if he's closing, how many saves is he going to get for that team? And I was like, let's, let's assume he's the closer. And let's assume he stays healthy. Because there are obviously two big questions with Mason Miller, right? He may not be closing. He may not be healthy. We don't know. Let's assume those two things are true. He'll get 30 saves. Easy. If he's healthy the full year and he's the closer for the A's, he'll get 30 saves, even if the A's go 50 and 112. Because there's two things that are going to happen to the A's when they win 50, if they win 50 games. One, they're not going to have a lot of three or four game winning streaks. So there aren't going to be a lot of times where you're like, oh, he's been in back-to-back days. He's not available today. That'll almost never come up. Second, when they do win, it'll be a close, low-scoring game because that's all they're going to be capable of doing. There will be... So uh, to me, like, I don't... I'm not concerned about how good the team is. I actually think these, like... Like, I'm more interested... If you tell me a team has a good pitching and bad offense, that's a good... That's what I want my closer to be on. That's the team I want. So, you know... That's how I that's how I view this. So I'm not concerned about the talent of the team overall. Yeah, that uh, I uh, skills are way more important to me when it comes to closing. That too, um, of because it should be that they the the saves are unpredictable. There's going to be years where the team with the best record in baseball has the leader in saves. Like that that's going to happen. Yeah. What I would say is if if you can use them as a source of strikeouts and uh, you know a, a high volume total because the team relies on them so much because the skills are there, that's when they're really, really important. We do have one more news item I want to get to, but uh, going to take a, a little bit of an ad break here to talk about one of our sponsors. Chad, I don't know about you, but this has been a really busy Christmas season. Um, we hosted Christmas Eve. We're traveling to all these different places on Christmas. Now we got New Year's coming up. I don't know if you host a New Year's party, go to a New Year's party, but finding time to do things like cooking and cleaning is, is kind of hard to come by. And that's where Factor comes in. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service, can help you eat well for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle while tackling all of your holiday to-dos. My wife and I have a pretty nice breakup. She does a lot of the cooking. I do all the cleaning, but we just haven't had time for it, especially for meal prepping. So cross meal prepping off your list this holiday season with Factor. Skip the meal prepping, grocery shopping, chopping, prepping, cleaning up. The grocery stores have been an absolute mess. Good luck getting into Whole Foods. Instead, Get Factors fresh, never frozen meals delivered straight to your door. They're ready in just two minutes. So all you have to do is heat and enjoy. Head to factormeals.com slash K-O-R-K-50 and use code K-O-R-K-50 to get 50% off. That's code K-O-R-K-50 
five zero at factormeals.com slash K-O-R-K five zero to get fifty percent off. So Chad, we're we're getting through the news here. Um and one last acquisition that it's not the acquisition I care so much about, like that this particular player, he doesn't have a lot of fantasy value. That's Kevin Kiermaier. He went back to the Blue Jays one year, ten and a half million. So this is not necessarily important for Kiermaier's fantasy value. However, Toronto now has a lineup, like a, a, a starting lineup. They had a need in center field, I guess. I mean, Dalton Varsha is a great fielder, but Kevin Kiermaier is going to be back in center field. Terrific fielder. If they don't make any more major moves, at least to the offense, right? And look, they were in on Otani. They were willing to spend over a half a billion dollars. So maybe more moves are coming. But if if they don't have a lot of big moves on the horizon, the four through nine in their lineup looks something like Danny Jansen, Kevin Biggio uh, platooning with Santiago Espinal, Davis Schneider, who had a couple of weeks of fun performance last year, Dalton Varsho, who can't hit his way out of a wet paper bag, Alejandro Kirk, so a third catcher in this lineup. Not that Dalton Varsho's catcher, but again, I'm kind of picking on how bad he was. And then Kevin Kiermeyer. So that's behind an aging George Springer. A terrific Bo Bichette, 125 WRC plus in 2023. I love Bo Bichette. And Vlad Jr., who certainly has his own issues. I know we'll talk about him later in the issue, the episode. Ultimately, my question is, are the Jays looking like a lineup that you're thinking here in December? This is a team I might be streaming against this season, which is crazy because the Blue Jays offense has been so good the last few years, really for a while. But is this an offense that you're looking at? And you're like, man, I, this is a this is an offense I can target. I can stream against. Right now, today, yeah. I mean, I, I like, yes, especially because, you know, Springer will probably miss 20 to 40 games and Jansen will probably miss half the season. And like some of the good hitters on this team may not be around all the time. That said, I, I'm not, uh, there's no way they're done. There's just no way. It's going to have to come by trade though, right? Like unless they go get Cody Bellinger, like what, what's out there? First of all, I, I don't believe for a second that Kevin Kiermaier is starting for them. I don't know what their plan is, but they've got something else in the works because there's no way they went out there and were like, we have a gold glove center fielder in Dalton Varsha. We're going to push him to left in order to have a really good defensive outfield, which isn't even necessarily true because Springer's not that great in right anymore. And so I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that's like, I know that's what roster resource has right now. I know they have that because I don't know what else they could have right now. I, don't think that's the plan. So I, I don't so, know if it's due to... It's mostly... Kiermaier's had a lot of injuries in his career. But last season with the Blue Jays, he played the second most games of his career. Second most games in a season of his career. 129 games he played for the Blue Jays. Now, I don't know how many of those he started and how many of those were defensive replacements. But he got a sizable chunk of playtime last year. He wasn't terrible. He hit right. He's okay. I, I, I think he could play quite a bit. Yeah, then yes, I'll be targeting this offense. Like if that if that's actually if their plan is actually like let's make Dalton Varsha worthless by putting him in left field instead of playing him at center field where he has value, then yeah, I'm uh I'm I'm in. Let's let's target this team. So I, I just I just don't buy it. I I don't know. Maybe that's what they're really gonna do. 
I could see them being in a Bellinger. I think going and getting Reese Hoskins and pushing Jansen and Kirk into a timeshare at catcher with them also sharing some time with Hoskins at DH makes more sense to me than having Jansen or Alejandro Kirk as your DH. Beyond that, I don't know what else they might do, but yeah, I mean, if this is really like, if this is their opening day lineup, this could easily be one of the worst lineups in baseball. Yeah, I agree. And and I think you brought up a really important point with the George Springer injury situation. Like the dude's always hurt. And I know you're not a fan. I've been a huge fan of George Springer. I, I just think there was so much talent in his prime and there, there was, and he's still good. But like you take one of those three guys out of this lineup and whew, yikes. So anyway, this might be the perfect transition. Uh, Chad and I were looking at the NFBC ADPs and we're thinking keeper leagues. How can these translate? And quite often, you know, you'll find in your keeper leagues, especially in their inaugural seasons, sometimes the ADP is actually not that different than in redraft formats outside of like prospects, right? Like you're you might see in a keeper league, Jackson Holiday get pushed way up. Um, and, and obviously that's normal and that can end up being a great pick. But in a lot of cases, you know, keeper leagues, People are trying to win. Um, and so the ADP is is usually pretty similar, but you can find some great values late. So what Chad and I did is we targeted uh, three guys that we're going to talk about each that we kind of like where their NFBC ADP is at if that translated to a keeper league. It's, and it's not going to be perfect every single time. I know one of the players I'm choosing for this is a really young, exciting player who most likely would get pushed up in keeper drafts. But again, we're looking at NFBC ADP. How would that translate to keeper value going forward? And who would we target in our keeper leagues if they're at that spot? And one important caveat is we're ignoring prospects. You know, I mentioned Jackson Holiday earlier. He would get pushed way up. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, well, Jackson Holiday in the 11th round or whatever it is could be a great value in a keeper league. No kidding. We're going to ignore the prospects, talk about some of the more veteran or maybe at least one year in kind of guys. And so, Chad, I want you to start things off here. I know one of your players would be a great transition here, but you don't have to choose him. Who are we going? No, we can first? start with Vlad. We can start with Vlad. So you make me rethink this. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> that's a bad offense around him. But <laughs> the one that for him is Junior. Yeah, Vlad Guerrero Jr. has has slipped to being a a third round pick in twelve teamers, early third even in fifteen teamers. His average pick right now thirty four point eight seven over the last three and a half weeks since the beginning of December. And I look, I know I have, I mean, full disclosure, I just traded away Vlad Jr. in a dynasty league uh, in a deal where I got, who did I get? I got Michael Harris and Shane Boz. So I did just trade him away. So I'm, I'm not here to say that like, this guy is the best player ever. Everyone's just wrong about him. A lot. I get it. I do that trade too. Yeah, it's not so that trade, that trade aside, we have seen Vlad put up a 419 Woba season. It was only two years ago, right? It was 2021, uh, where he hit 311, 401 on base, 601 slugging with 48 home runs. He followed that up last year or two years ago with 32 home runs, a, a 274 average, 339 on base. Still good at basically everything. And he was still a first round pick going into this last season. So what happened to him this last season? Well, the the walk rate went up. The strikeout rate went down. The bat pip went down. 
Now, he also had a decrease in his home run per fly ball rate, but his hard hit rate is pretty steady. His barrel rate is pretty steady. His ex-WOBA last year, his WOBA last year was 340. His ex-WOBA was 374. So if his ADP in keeper leagues is around that third round pick, this is it. This is the last chance to potentially buy in on Vlad as a getting him at a value where you can keep him for at least a year or two, depending on your league rules and all that kind of stuff. Because I think he could easily be back to being a first round pick next year. Like if his home run per fly ball rate goes up and his BAPIP goes up, and neither of those things are like crazy things to expect. There's some underlying numbers there that are really strong in terms of his, his plate discipline, things like that. I also think that there's a little bit of fatigue on him. Like we were talking about him in, you know, 2018, right? He came up in 2019. We were talking about him in 2018 as like, this guy is the next big thing. It feels like it's been forever that we've been talking about him. And he's had that one season where he lived up to the hype. And then other than that, it's been sort of like, oh, he's been good, but he hasn't been great. He is is 24 years old. He will still be 24 when he reports to camp in a couple months. Like, he is still a child. <laughs> Let's not forget that, you know, five years of major league experience doesn't mean that he's like past his prime and pushing 30. He turns 25 in March. He is still young. He is still at a point where he could easily be pre-breakout. There are, there are guys his age that are in AAA that were like, oh man, I can't wait for this guy to get a shot. So let's just like take a deep breath before we write Vlad off. And it's not that picking him in the third round is writing him off, but there is way more than third round talent here. And in a league like, like our, you know, one of our listener leagues, the keeper rule is you have to pay one round higher than their draft cost. If you're telling me I can get him for a third round pick this year, potentially have him for a second next year and a first the year after that, I think all three of those could be great values. I could be very happy doing that. In a league that's more of like a keep forever, where you're not paying a cost, or where you just give up your last draft pick or whatever to keep whoever you want, like this is huge, huge opportunity to get in on Vlad. Don't miss out. Yeah, I love it. I, and and I, I'm glad you brought up the home run to fly ball rate because the big thing with Vlad ever since he got called up and even before he got called up was the launch angle, right? I mean, the ground balls were out of control. And last season, he went from a 52.3% ground ball rate in 2022, which is bad. It's well above league average, to a 45.3% ground ball rate, which is about league average. Um, so if, if he can get a little bit, I guess, luckier, it feels lazy to say that, but if he can get a little bit luckier, he could put forward a tremendous season because to improve that ground ball rate, he didn't have to sacrifice anything in terms of exit velocity or anything like that. The max EV was still really high. The exit velocity and barrel rate were essentially the same as they were the year before. And that all comes with elite plate discipline, a, a sub 15% strikeout rate, which to me means that floor is so safe. And if we're talking about a safe floor for a high upside 24-year-old, yes, this is a guy you should target in your keeper leagues. I am on board with the early Vlad picks uh, if you can get them there. For me, uh, there's there's one player that I'm going to talk about that might get some of our league mates confused because uh, I brought him up in our league chat, and I, I'll just start with him. And that's O'Neill Cruz. Uh, so I have O'Neill Cruz in... Uh, keeper cut actually like listener league one and two on fan tracks. And I think I also have them in the Ot new league. <laughs> so I'm, 
and, and I have him in the first team I drafted this year in NFBC 50. So I'm very exposed to O'Neill Cruz. Uh, and that's not coming from a place of like, man, I, I love this guy. I just, I just, I guess in all those situations, kind of like the value. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, so first of all, again, the ADP is about 83. Uh, I guess what, what made me choose him right off the bat is, I'm sorry, there's just no way that you could possibly convince me that Ellie Dilla Cruz should go 61 spots higher than O'Neill Cruz. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're someone who is interested in Ellie Dilla Cruz in the second round, or you've taken him in the second or third round, then you should definitely feel like O'Neill Cruz is worth a late sixth, early seventh round pick, especially in a keeper league. I, I mentioned in the discord that he has a strikeout rate and you need to brace yourself for this. I heard this on rates and barrels. I had to look it up and I looked at it like 14 different times that O'Neill Cruz has a 51.6% strikeout rate versus left-handed pitchers. That is just like simply horrendous. That's like unheard of. I don't care that the sample is about 100 plate appearances. Like that means that 100 plate appearances, he, sucked, he struck out like 50 times. It's awful. Um, that's worse than platoon bad. With that said, to kind of keep this comparison going, and I know everybody under the sun has compared Ellie and, and O'Neill here, but Ellie's was 40.2% against left-handed pitch. And he's a switch hitter. He's got a little bit of an advantage. O'Neill's from the left side. Ellie's facing them as a righty, and he's striking out 40.2% of the time. Also comically bad. Um, but his strikeout rate against righties was 31%. O'Neill's strikeout rate against right-handed pitching is just 26%. That's fine. Um, it's not great. And I actually say it's definitely below average, but don't use plate discipline as a reason to say you, you, you can't take O'Neill Cruz in the sixth or whatever, but you can take Ellie in the second. So enough of the comparison. I don't want to pile on too much about O'Neill and Ellie De La Cruz. I do think the difference between the two in terms of picks is just crazy. Um, but simply put, why would I take this guy in the sixth or seventh, despite the strikeout rate and the fact that we haven't seen him in forever? It's the tools. Um, this is this is more of a reminder than some like groundbreaking information that I'm sharing on the podcast here. We're all well versed in his tools. Like, yes, he's got strikeout issues. The Pirates suck. We haven't seen him in a really long time because of the ankle injury. But with that said, one of the major drawbacks about having not seen him in a long time is that we haven't seen him with the new stolen base rules. And although he never really posted crazy stolen base numbers in the minors, I don't even know if he had a 20 stolen base season. Like he could easily be one of the players that takes crazy advantage of these rules. And we see him up in the 30, 40 stolen base range. If you we have that. And he's he's given us an OBP that hovers around 300, could be a little bit higher. Steamer currently projects him for 25 homers and 21 stolen bases. That's just in 128 games. That means if we pace that out for 150 games, are we talking about a 30-30 season at 25 years old? Um, I mean, he could put forth 90 runs, 30 homers, 80 RBI, 30 stolen bases at a 250 average. And that's pretty safely second round value. So O'Neill Cruz, this isn't like earth shattering, but he has immense keeper upside. So if you can get him in the sixth or seventh and somebody else took Ellie in the second, laugh all the way to the bank. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm the, the comparison again, you don't want to beat the comparison to death, but like Ellie has all the problems that O'Neill has, but worse. It's right. like, so I, I don't I'll be honest, I, I I'm not sure I like either of these guys at their ADP. So I'm not quite where you are with O'Neill being like, yeah, like this is, you know, I love him at this ADP keeper leagues. I do think 
I would take him earlier in a keeper league than I would in a redraft league because the the future value, like if he if he has a breakout season, you could be cashing in on that for years. Um in a keeper league. I I you know, I look at O'Neal though, and he's still you still have to worry about the playing time. Like, can he stay healthy and stay on the field? And I think he projects as a above average, but not great hitter. And shortstop, that may be fine. That might be good enough. But I'm just not totally sold that he's, you know, a sixth round ADP means he's a top 80-ish, 80-90-ish player. And I'm not sold he's a top 100 guy. He obviously could be, but I'm just a little bit more cautious. You know, we need to see him actually do it. But I would take him before I would take Ali. So let me throw you some names in his range before we we take our second break here. Here are the two shortstops going before him. Would you rather have O'Neill Cruz or Matt McClain? Ooh, that's an interesting one. I, I think McLean. So he is going about 20 picks higher, which given his BABIP last year and a, and a couple of other, I mean, it's his strikeout rate too. McLean is not uh, somebody who's afraid to strike out. No, but I wonder, I, I wonder part of what's happening here is a, a shortstop issue. Cause like there's lots of questions about McLean too. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it, it could be a like, positional thing. Because, like, there's... I'm looking now at this ADP and, like, the next catcher after O'Neill Cruz going 40 picks later, 30 picks later than him is Xander Bogarts. And, like, I sort of think that Bogarts should be going a little earlier than that and Cruz and McLean should be closer to where Bogarts is going. They offer totally different things. But Bogarts is certainly the safer, higher floor option. And I think he's coming at a little bit of a discount here versus those two. Interesting. I, I I was really disheartened by Bogarts' season last year. For me, I look at the five names in that range, so it's not it's a huge range. McLean and Kim before O'Neill Cruz and Bogarts and Swanson after O'Neill Cruz. I'd take Cruz out of those five at that price, especially. Um, I, I don't like where Bogarts is going. I don't like where Swanson is going. But um, it is. It's kind of an interesting twist for this position. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating because, like, I don't know. I don't know how excited I am about Hassan Kim. I know he stole 38 bases last year, right? Not He didn't quite get to 40. 38, yeah. Like, the 17 home runs, 38 stolen bases, huge. hard to argue with. Uh, I just, I don't know. A lot of stuff in the hood suggested he was a little lucky. Yeah, and so, like, part of it is I'm, like, looking at this group and all five of those guys – I have sort of like, I don't know, maybe catcher isn't very, or catcher, whatever position we're talking about, shortstop. Shortstop. Maybe shortstop is just really questionable after the first, jeez, I don't even know. Because like like I said, Ellie, I think, is going way too early. I do really like Turner, Seager, Lindor, Henderson, Bichette. Abrams I like, but I think there are some still some questions with him. Horner is, you know, average in speed and nothing else. So to me, that that's where it becomes 
questionable. <laughs> yeah. Like once we get to Nico Horner, that's when I'm like, oh, I, I guess I kind of missed out on shortstop. It's so I, I, I looking at this in redraft. I'm not going to really judge some people reaching for Jackson Holiday even in the early drafts where we don't know if he's going to make it or not because I don't know. It's it's not that attractive of a position. But with that said, yeah. I do I do like O'Neill Cruz where he's going. Yeah, I mean I. That's fair. I maybe maybe I like him in that order. I just wonder if maybe I would just rather wait and get Willie Adamas, Ezekiel Tovar, talking keeper leagues. JP Crawford, I think some of the changes he made last year are legit. Zach Neto in the 20, 280th pick-ish range. I don't know. I just think there's guys I'd rather wait on at that point. But I yeah. also think I'm going to try to get one of the top like five to six catcher or shortstops. <laughs> that That is ideal. And uh, that is a range where O'Neill Cruz is going where it, it might be best to target starting pitcher given the, the plethora of yeah. starters available in that range. So before we get to Chad's second player on this list, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh Uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, right? Gathering information, you get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, following up, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. Welcome back, everyone. Keep or Cut podcast. Chad and I are working through three players each that we like at their current ADP if we were to translate that directly to keeper value. Uh, So we went over Vlad Guerrero in the third. Uh, Chad really likes the value there. I talked about Ilneo Cruz who's going kind of late sixth, early seventh in your 12-teamers. So Chad, who do you have second on your list? So the next guy I'm going to go with is uh, a guy I thought you might take because he's a Boston guy. That's Masataka Yoshida. And Yoshida, if the season had ended at the All-Star break last year. He'd be going to the third round, man. (laughs) I mean, in the first half last year, he hit 316 with a 382 on base. He had 10 home runs and six stolen bases. That's not a ton of power or a ton of speed, but he was getting on base he was hitting for high average. He was at 47 runs, 44 RBIs. He was, he was driving guys in and getting it himself. There was a lot to like. And then he just crashed. I mean, he crashed hard. Like his his walk rate in the first half was 8.1%. It went down to 2.9%. His strikeout rate went from 10.7% up to 18.4%. His overall line was a 136 WRC plus in the first half. It went down to 73 in the second half. And, you know, you could look at that and say that, you know, the league caught up with him. They figured out what he's, you know, what he's all about, blah, 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 blah. 
I don't think that's what happened. There was a lot of chatter about, and this isn't just with him. Like, it's a really, really different season coming to playing MLB versus Japan. The country is a little bit bigger. You you may have you may have heard this that the United States is a bigger country than Japan in terms of you know physical space. And when you're playing in Boston and you're traveling to like LA or even Miami, like you're going, you're taking trips that are unlike anything you have to take in Japan. You're playing more games. It is just, it is a tougher schedule on players' bodies. And there was a lot of talk with Yoshida that he was just beat down by the season. On top of that, I think for a lot of guys, it takes a good year to adjust to everything. The game is a little bit different. The country is different. You, For a lot of these guys, they're either learning a new language or at least living in a language that's not their first language. There's cultural differences they have to adjust to. Like, There's a lot to absorb when you're coming over from another country. I think that often gets ignored. And it, it, it for me, it's it impacts how I value a guy like Yamamoto this year. Um, but I, I kind of look at Yoshida as like, Man, a full year under his belt, coming into season knowing what to expect, not hitting that same wall either because he paces himself better, because he just understands what's coming. I think there's a lot of upside in this bat for a guy whose ADP, so I'm going to double check where it is, because I looked at it earlier, but now I can't remember. His ADP is 174. And I just think... He's he's better than that. First of all, his projection, like his steamer projection in a five by five setting, projects to be more like a top one forty ish, one thirty to one forty ish player. So he's already a good value from that perspective. And I think that his projection underrates him because I think there's a decent chance he comes back and just doesn't fade the way he did last year. So is he a top hundred guy? I don't know, but I think he's closer to top 100 than he is to 180. And so I love that ADP even for redraft and in keeper leagues where he could potentially establish himself as a top 100 guy moving forward. Uh, I'm a big fan. That all makes sense to me. Those intangible things that that we just can't account for would would track, right? Because he came out like a house of fire and and in the second half really trailed off. I do wonder with the Red Sox so closely linked, as I mentioned before, to Teoscar Hernandez, like if they do bring Hernandez in, the rumor are they're going to trade a younger outfielder for a, a starting pitcher because they need help in starting pitching and they clearly are not enamored with the available free agents. But I don't know. Sometimes plans don't go the way that we want them to. And if they bring in a player like Teoscar Hernandez, I don't know how convinced I am that that Yoshida is going to be worth that range in the 170s because I'm a little bit worried about the playtime. The Red Sox are overloaded in left-handed hitters. And if he comes out and in April, he looks exactly like he did in the second half last year. They just have options. Um, Even without Teoscar, I mean, they have guys that they can move in and out. They have young pieces that if they've really committed to sucking this season, they need to, we need to know at the end of the season, how good is Willie Abreu? How good is Sedan Rafaela? Um, you know, how good is Jaron Duran? This is a huge season for him coming up, assuming he isn't trade traded uh, for a starting pitcher. I think he would be the most likely to go. So, look, Yoshida is paid very well, um, and he's got some some 
pedigree behind him coming from Japan. I mean, it, there was a lot of excitement around this player. I'd be surprised if he really loses play time and becomes a bench bat. That's not necessarily what I'm saying, but he's not a good fielder. He's now moving to the DH role. He provides basically no power from a position where you kind of need power from. So I could see him getting moved or I could see him not getting the plate appearances that people want. And that concerns me a little bit. Um, but if everything goes to plan, they bring in someone like Teoscar Hernandez, they then ship out Willier Abreu or Sedan Rafaela or, you know, Jared Duran to get an outfield piece. Yoshida's going to fit fine. We'll see how he does. But um, I've, I've got concerns there. The second half was really disheartening. I, I hope it's what you said it was. I don't think he's likely to lose playing time in part because of that contract. And I, I'm not a big believer that like, oh, you pay the guy, you've got to play him. But like, They've committed to this guy as a meaningful part of their lineup for the next four years after, like, including this one, right? Because that's that's what they're they're paying him to do. And so they either need to, I mean, there are basically three paths forward for them with him. Path one is they're committed to him. He's in the lineup. Fine. Path two is they have concerns and they'd like to trade him for pitching instead of trading Duran or Rafaela or someone like that. Fine. Again, from a fantasy perspective, that's cool with me. Trade him. Go for it. He'll get traded. Like if he, if someone trades for that contract, they're trading for him to use him. The third option is for them to sort of do what you said, which is we can't really trade him. We're paying him all this money, but like we need to see what the kids can do. And the, and the concern, the thing I see is if you take him and you're like, you know what? He's just not going to be an everyday guy for us. You've now crushed his value to the point that you probably can't trade him. And you're stuck with him at 18 million a year until 2027. I don't think they're going to go down that path for many months, right? I think it'd have to be July and he's still struggling and they can't find a trade partner before they really back off being committed to him. So I'm not that worried about the playing time. I do hear you. The second half was super disheartening. And so, of course, I'm, I am downplaying that second half. And, I, you know, that makes me a little nervous. But I think, like I said, the projections look really good. I, I, I'll, I'll take that bet. Yeah. And, of course, in your points formats, you know, Yoshida is going to have a lot more value than in your, your Roto. Yeah. Don't look for a lot of those, those counting stats from him, especially if he's lower in the lineup. All right. I'm going to mix things up. I'm going to go with the pitcher. Um, I'm going to go with Edward Cabrera. So Edward Cabrera of the Miami Marlins right now has an ADP of 343. I think he's a fun transition here because he's one of the names that was actually rumored uh, for the Red Sox to be in on if they do follow through with this plan, uh, potentially trading for him. And that would get me excited, Chad, because Cabrera, first of all, he had the 22nd best K rate among all starting pitchers with at least 90 innings pitched. That was a 27.2% mark. That was ahead of Garrett Cole and Zach Wheeler, who were 23rd and 24th. It was a down year in strikeouts for Garrett Cole. That statement doesn't hold as much weight as maybe it would have a few years ago, but Cabrera can generate swings and misses. His changeup is amazing. Uh, he threw it more than any other pitch 31% of the time. It garnered a 19.5% swing strike rate. Um, it had a 186 batting average against the ground ball rate, which uh, I've, I've reconsidered after talking to Nick about this, but I, I'm still all in on good ground ball rates for starting pitchers. On the changeup, it was 71.6%. 71.6% ground ball rate on that changeup. 
That's over 20 percentage points higher than the league average on changeups. The home run to fly ball rate on the pitch was 23.1%, about nine percentage points higher than the league average. So that could even get better. Like it could become a better pitch. His curveball is arguably just as good. He throws his curveball 23% of the time and it generated a 38.3% CSW called strikes plus swinging strikes, including a 15% swing strike rate, which is awesome. Uh, the ground ball rate is also really high. Like the changeup, uh, the BABIP still feels out of control though. So like normally a high ground ball rate would generate a high BABIP, but the BABIP on his curveball last year was 457. That's way too high. So kind of like the changeup, I think this excellent pitch could get even better. The problem with Edward Cabrera is not his curveball or his changeup, which are awesome. The problem is his four seamer. He doesn't throw enough strikes. He doesn't generate enough whiffs with it, but that's kind of besides the point. He clearly has strikeout pitches. He just can't find the strike zone. His walk rate is crazy. Opponents are hitting it in the air, his fastball. And despite the surprisingly low amount of homers, they're hitting it really hard. So that feels like a fluke. That feels like all of a sudden next year, I wouldn't be surprised if he's given up a lot of homers on his four-seamer, at least compared to 2023. It's tough to be a great starting pitcher with a fastball that you can't command and that gets hit hard in the air a lot. Like it's that's He has a challenge ahead of him. But with that said, he gets great velocity. He's above league average uh, velocity on the fastball. Um, he gets above average spin on it. So like the tools are there. The raw ability is there for Edward Cabrera, especially with the fastball. It just feels like he needs to improve his his control, which some pitchers figure that out. Many don't. But at pick 343, you're telling me I can gamble in a keeper league on a guy who's just 25 years old and has a changeup and a curveball that do the things that his changeup and curveballs do? Like, I'm in on this pitcher in a keeper league. Um, and, and I'm looking at all my leagues now being like, should I be considering keeping Edward Cabrera? Like, what's the price I have on him? Because, man, there is so much skill here. He just has to find a way to throw more strikes. Yeah, uh, I agree with you that at his value, like at his, his ADP, he's a great value and, and he's worth taking late. I think you're downplaying his control issues a little bit. Like, oh, he just has to figure it out. He walked six batters per nine innings last year. His his walk rate was 15.2%. Like, that's that's really bad. <laughs> like I and so I I uh I'm a little hesitant to say like, oh, he just needs to like work out the control. Like he needs to become like a different pitcher with regards to his control. And it's extreme to the point. I mean, like last year, you know, you mentioned pitchers who had thrown over 90 innings. There are 141 pitchers who threw over 90 innings. The highest walk rate among those guys is Michael Kopech at 15.4%. The next highest is Edward Cabrera at 15, 15.2%. No one else is over 13.3%. And then there's another drop. By the way, the guy 13.3 is Blake Snell. So it's probably worth mentioning that like he had a decent year despite the, the walk rate. Um, but then the next step down from that is 11.6%. Like Cabrera and Kopech are in a world of their own in terms of their inability to find the strike zone. And I, I just, uh, I think it's a pretty tall order for him to get from where he is to even manageable 
right? Like if he makes huge strides in his walk rate, he'll catch up with Blake Snell and maybe pass Blake Snell and have the third lowest or third highest walk rate in baseball instead of the second highest. Like his path to getting anywhere better than the top five in in worst walk rate is a long way to go. So I am I'm willing to take that bet on deeper rosters. Like I I like him cheap in auto new for sure. In our listener leagues where I've got 28 players, I could see him as a late draft pick or a I don't know. I I'm I've got some real questions about his ability to make improvements there meaningful enough to matter. Right. I mean, but that's that's why he's going at pick 343. <laughs> yeah. Snell, Snell's 13.3% walk rate. He also struck out 31.5% of hitters. So like in a strikeout rate minus walk rate world, Snell is still like just outside the top 30 in baseball, I think. He's 40th in baseball out of that 141 pitchers with with 90 plus innings and we're looking at Cabrera being 103rd in baseball in that number. Like it's just, he's just in a different space. And so, yes, there is a, there is a reason he's going as late as he is. I I just think that there's a good chance that he makes significant strides and still walks way too many guys and still just doesn't have the value you'd like him to have because of that. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, I, I look at the pitchers going in his range, um, and that's that's Severino, Stevenson, Varland, Tyon. Like, there's guys there. I'm not convinced what their role even is. So we're talking in keeper yeah. leagues, and like a big thing for me when I'm looking at long term is what are the skills? What are, what's the raw ability? And I, I think Edward Cabrera's stuff is nasty. So like, I, I'm not telling anybody to necessarily reach too high for Edward Cabrera or that you should be targeting him in your light leagues. But if you're telling me that I have a keeper value on Edward Cabrera, that's essentially a last round pick. I'm strongly considering keeping those skills um, because there's a lot of talent there. I mean, we've seen him put it together for stretches, especially for individual starts where it's like, he looks as good as anybody. He had a start against Colorado. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before where it was like, I thought he was going to pitch a perfect game. I mean, he was absolutely incredible. So that that kind of upside gets me excited. Did you have any pitchers so, on your list, Chad? I did, but I, want, I just want to say one more thing about Cabrera because in our in our listener leagues, we roster we have twelve team leagues, twenty eight man rosters. We roster three hundred and thirty six players. So at his ADP, he's actually outside the range at which he would get drafted, and and I think. My concern is, like, even if you're keeping him for a last-round pick, unless you're not keeping anyone else with a last-round value, because in our leagues, if you have a guy you picked up as a free agent in the season, you can keep him for a 28th-round pick. But if you have multiple of those guys, then the next guy is a 27th-round pick, the next is 26th. Like, if I had Cabrera on one of my teams, even if I kept him as a 28th-round pick, he'd be pushing someone else up. I'd be losing my, like, 24th-round pick in order to keep him. There is no chance he's worth that. Then the challenge I run into is if I'm going to draft him, I'm going to end up drafting him in like the 23rd or 24th round because that'll be the last pick that I have because of the inflation that happens due to keepers. And I don't think he's that likely to become a keeper at that price. 
Now, there is the breakout potential, right, which I think is what you're really talking about, and I totally see that. But I actually think Cabrera is a guy that what I what I want to do is pick him up in fab when either when he doesn't get drafted or when he's uh, dropped after walking seven guys in his first start. Like that, that's what I want to do it when I can actually lock him up for the future 28th round draft cost. Yeah, I mean, but again, that's where this comes down to. It's not really apples to apples, right? Like this NFBC yeah. ADP is not going to translate to keeper leagues. Like I can tell you, like I, he would absolutely be in the range of players taken. If there were 12 me's and we drafted a fan tracks league, that's the same exact format as what we have. He would definitely get drafted before a lot of these names. I mean, some of these names ahead of him in ADP yeah. are like middle relievers, guys who just have absolutely no value in our our format. Um, so, I mean, it, it's not apples to apples. He's not a perfect pitcher. Um, and I don't think he, you're, he's, he's never going to be a sub three walks per nine guy, but we have seen some pitchers with, with some control issues pitch pretty well. I mean, to, to use your reference, Blake Snell, again, his numbers are still better than Cabrera's even with his walk issues, but he's a guy's walking more than anybody else in MLB and he's winning Cy Young's. So it can be done. I love the value this late. But I am curious to hear who your starting pitcher is for uh, yeah. Hicks here. Who do we like as a keeper? I'm going to take a starting pitcher who pitched significantly worse than Cabrera last year and is going significantly higher. So, <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh, but the pitcher I put on my list was Carlos Carlos Rodon, not a Red Sox. Um, and this is this is actually I, there's not a ton to say here. In 2021 and 2022, Carlos Rodon was arguably the best pitcher in baseball, certainly in the conversation of the best pitchers in baseball. And then he was hurt and he sucked last year. It was 64 innings, mostly around injuries. And his ADP right now is 175. He is the 68th pitcher off the board. There's relievers going before him. So that's not just the 68th starter off the board, but he's going outside the top 50 starters or maybe borderline a top 50 starter. And there is a chance, it's not a guarantee, there is a chance that he shows up to spring training, goes to his first bullpen session, fires a couple of like, you know, 96, 97 mile per hour pitches, which is sort of where he maxed out at times. He didn't average that on his fastball at his peak, but like, and he's healthy and he's fine and he's should be going in the top five of pitchers. Like he is like there is a, there is a distinct possibility that by the end of March, he's a first or second round pick. Like I'm not even talking next year. I'm saying this year he will be going probably not first. He could be going in the second or maybe third round of drafts this year. If he looks healthy and strong in spring training. So there's definitely a, a demand for elite starting pitching at the top. There's not a lot of reliable guys. I would say like the fact that Kevin Gosman isn't going in the second round, I can't imagine a world in which like, like unless Carlos Rodon comes out firing 101 miles an hour and you know, the Yankees are like, we've never seen anything like this in our lives. Then that I don't know if he's going to quite go that high. He is going to move up boards. I just think he is like, un- unless he gets hurt. Yeah. No matter what he does in spring training, the people are going to remember like, oh, Carlos Rodon does exist. And, you know, while you were talking, I was looking up his his velocity and his spin rates and his usage of pitches. And like, honestly, nothing really changed 
from 2022 up yeah. to 2023. Like he's throwing the same four pitches, the same amount of times at the same velocities with the same spin rates. And he's got disastrous results. Um, I think, I think this is a case of a guy trying to live up to a contract. And we've seen that happen in New York where it ends poorly. And we've seen that in New York where guys kind of get it together and pitch. Well, we saw that here in Boston with John Lackey. Now he was dealing with UCL damage, but sign this guy to a big contract. It looks like a great pitcher ends up pitching really poorly. What the heck's going on here? Ends up by the end of the contract looking like the guy that you originally signed. Um, Rodon is, I think, more talented than John Lackey, and I didn't expect John Lackey to come up in this episode, but there you go. Um, <laughs> and I could easily see him being worth way more than what you would have to pay for him in drafts right now, especially with the demand on starting pitching. Anything else on Rodon there, Chad? No, I mean, I like I. You're right. He was he was legitimately bad last year. Even in that stretch, of, like there was a there was a, and it's you know, it is a two start stretch, <laughs> but there was a two start stretch in September at Boston at Pittsburgh, not the best offenses, but still eleven and two thirds innings, nineteen strikeouts, four walks. He did allow two home runs that kept his FIP at three point two six instead of being much better than that. But like he is capable. And he was capable as recently as, you know, his third and fourth starts ago of being one of the best in the game. Yeah, I his draft price right now is, to me, it's just silly. There's just no reason for it to be where it is. Agreed completely, especially given some of the names that uh, that go ahead of him. So my, uh, my last pick here um, was Eloy Jimenez, who, like, for me, I, I, I don't know if I've ever gone more back and forth on a player. I wrote about how he was a bust a couple of years ago on pitcher list, not a bust of a player, but a bust for that particular draft. I can't remember if that was last year or the year before. Um, and now all of a sudden I'm, I'm back in on, uh, on Eloy. So the ADP on Eloy right now to me is, is the complete contributing factor. It's two sixteen. Like I get that he's hurt a lot, which by the year that wasn't, by the way, that was an appendectomy last year. Like that wasn't like, like, Oh, here it is. Another, you know, shoulder injury or whatever it is with Eloy Jimenez. No, he had an appendectomy. Like, what? I'm sorry that his appendix did not live up to your uh, uh, health standards, folks. But um, he still played 120 games once he got through that uh, that appendectomy. 18 homers, 50 runs, 64 RBI. That isn't some like amazing pace, but it's pretty good for pick 216. <laughs> um, he made 14 starts in right field last season, so uh, some may have that outfield eligibility. I don't think he has it in NFBC, uh, and if he didn't make, uh, he won't have it on ESPN either. Uh, so I understand avoiding him in places where he's utility only, but I still think he's he's good value, especially if your util spot's still open at that point in drafts. Um, he's just entering his age 27 season. He was one of the more highly regarded prospects. He had to deal with the COVID season, which I know was weird for him, although I, if I remember correctly, he performed pretty well. Um, and that was like in the process of him just coming up. So I don't know how much that has like kind of distorted our image of Eloy Jimenez. I mean, you want to talk about fatigue. I think a lot of people have it for Eloy and, and some forget he just turned 27. He's never performed so badly that I thought like, oh man, this guy's never going to reach that power upside that we thought he had when he was coming up. Like he's, he's never been that bad where I thought like, all right, yep, that's gone. We have to recalibrate completely on Eloy Jimenez. I don't think that's the case. And while the launch angle is not good, I mean, like he, he, he needs to hit more balls consistently in the air and the barrel rate was down. The average exit velocity was down. Um, he still slashed his K rate down to a sub 20% mark. Like, 
that'll play when the guy hits the ball, he usually hits it with some authority. If he's making a lot more contact in the zone, which he is, he raised his zone contact rate to the highest of his career at 81.9%. That's a good sign. That's right around league average. This was an important development. And, and so if he starts to hit more balls in the air, like he's going to be a really good piece and a pick 216. I mean, we're talking about a guy who could be a keeper for you for years. Like he, he, if, if he lives up to, I don't know, let's say he's uh, what Nick Castellanos was on average over the last like three seasons, which I think is, is something that Eloy could be. He's a keeper for you for years at that original price point of 216. So kind of, Back in on Eloy now. And there's a possibility he gets traded because that lineup sucks. If he if he moves to a better place, all the much better. Yeah. I, the trade is a weird thing with him because if he gets traded out of that stadium, that's not great because it's a good power stadium. But that team is such a mess that you've got to feel like I would take a worse stadium to get him to a different team. Sure. Um, I think the only question with him to me at this price is the util only if he doesn't get, if he doesn't have outfield in your format, or he doesn't earn back outfield, then I think he has a floor of like you end up cutting him at some point because you need to use you need more useful players and you have other guys you can slot in at util and fine. But that's really the only risk here because his downside just isn't that low. His floor is not that low. So if he has outfield eligibility or if you're confident he's going to get outfield eligibility, the the floor is high enough that this pick is an easy pick. And the upside, as you said, is is huge. Like we know what he is capable of if he really puts all together. And he very well still might put it all together. It's, you know, talked about the fatigue with Vlad. You talked about it here with Eloy. Like he's not old. He's still in his prime. And so I, I'm I'm uh yeah, I'm in on this. I like this one. Again, I think the only risk is if he sort of settles in doing what he did last year, which isn't bad, and he's util only, you may find yourself in a position where you're like, wow, there's like a a shortstop who isn't as good, but I can pick I need a shortstop and I can pick that guy up and I can drop I can drop Eloy and put in one of my outfielders at Util and it'll be fine. Like you may find yourself in that position, but like Man, I, yeah, this is this is great value at at two twenty nine. And you, I think, especially in fantasy baseball, folks, if you're taking someone after ADP two hundred, you should feel pretty comfortable at some point dropping them. That's not a player that you have oh, yeah. to house. Like if Eloy comes out of the gate, he's batting a buck ninety, and his strikeout rates back up to twenty five percent. Like, feel free to cut him. Um, but at his current value, that's that's pretty good. So folks, that, that does it for us. Mining the news there and uh, combing through six names. We got Vlad, Yoshida, and Rodon from Chad. I like all three of those, especially Vlad. I, I, I think he's he's due for a big season. It hurts to be cutting him in a few leagues. It's just the price tag is a little too much for me right now. I gave you O'Neill Cruz, which is definitely going to be a little surprising to some of the folks in Listener League too. Um, and then I went kind of deep for my next two picks with Eloy Jimenez and Edward Cabrera, but I do think they can return some value for you next year. Uh, that'll do it for us folks episode 222 Um, thanks for listening and we'll get you again in a couple weeks at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar 
Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.